The carpet is comfy. Can we again uh, just give it up for those five folks who were baptized tonight, man? Pretty awesome, incredible, great stuff. Again, wanna, I want to commend uh, Bree's relationship with Madeline and uh, especially uh, Miles and Jacob and Jessica um, and Brooke, the discipling relationships and certainly Tim with his son. It's encouraging to see how much discipleship is happening around here. I love it. You guys ready to go tonight? So we are, we are settled. I feel like we're not settled. So eventually in college, I got tired of the F word. And um, um, I was tired of being asked, how are you doing? And asking how, how, how other people were doing. And then I just always got the, the, I always got fine. The cultural Christian F word. I, I began to like grow in, grow in like a, a disdain, a, a, almost a hatred of it. I was tired of always saying like, hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I was like, stop saying that. Like I... Come up with something else, you minimal vo vocabulary, McGee. Like, please, give me something. Okay, good, excellent, I don't care. So then I uh, started a, an experiment, a movement, if you will. Uh, it contained myself, and that's it. Um, I would ask people how they're doing, and then they would respond with an answer, uh, most likely canned. Then I would uh, come back uh, to them by, by saying why. So let me set up a scenario for you. Uh, walking down the school hallway, this is in college. See your brother. Hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm good. And I would say, why? <laughs> and like, I like it was a whole it was experiment, but it was so much fun. And so they would stop and they would be like, what? Like what? No, like what do you mean? No, I'm like, well, you said you're good. I'm just curious on why. Like people could not answer the question. Like it was, it was as if I had just asked them, like you know, to derive some massive equation. I'm not even sure if that's right or mathematically accurate, but either way. Um, so it's caused me to think about a lot of things. So if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you four questions about a question to start. Is that okay? I know it's confusing. It'll get less. Here we go. Um, so I want to ask you four questions about this phrase, the most common phrase used or asked in our human language. So if you were to round proximate number of how many times you've been asked this question this week, I'm curious of the number. I'm not saying like, I, I, I know it's not going to be specific. You're like, 73, I've been keeping track of my palm. I, 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 under, like, I know that's not, that, that hasn't happened. So I'm, and we recognize, right, that there are certain um, variables, variances of this phrase. Uh, for instance, uh, oh, hello, what up, my brother, right? So that would be, <laughs> or how art thou, or, um, you know, how's it going, um, how's life? Like, all those are vari variances of this. So if you were to... Estimate the amount of times you've been asked that question this week. What would be the number? Second question I have for you is, how many, we had a number. What did you say? You were the same person that said, what did you say last week? Okay. Okay. Okay, you didn't say that last week, and we've, we've digressed. My second question is, <laughs> how many times have you asked this question in the last week? All right. Now, my third question is, uh, is going to take some vulnerability on your part. How many times would you per se, rather, what percentage of the responses either you've given or someone else has given to this question or one of its variables or variances would you say is true? In other words, like when you say, hey, how you doing, and someone says good, I'm asking what percentage of those answers do you think are actually accurate? A last question while you're in the pondersome mood this question has been asked often of others and of you. What I want to know is, how much time do you spend thinking about this question as it pertains to your life?
In other words, how much do you evaluate how am I? It's the most commonly used phrase in our language, the most common question. It's our fail-safe when we're talking with people. It's the thing we turn to the quickest. And I think that our issue isn't that we're deceitful. In other words, I don't think our issue is that when people ask us how we're doing, we just lie. I don't think that's the main problem. I think we're somewhat lazy. I think we're afraid that the people asking if they really care or not. So I think to say, actually, I'm doing horrible, they would be like, oh, great. Like, is that just their canned response, you know? <laughs> Had the worst day of my life. Awesome. So good to see you. Smile. You know, I want to smack you, right? <laughs> I don't think that's their issue. Rather, I think the issue is that you haven't spent enough time pondering how you actually are. And so when people come and they ask you how you're doing, you haven't spent, and others haven't spent enough time actually reflecting on that question to give a solid, good, right answer. Now what starts happening is you start realizing that that problem, this issue, this crossroads, is negating one of our greatest opportunities to have moment-by-moment reminders of the gospel. That won't make sense now. By the end of tonight, it will. And so I'm so excited that you're here tonight because literally there's a possibility at a complete perspective shift tonight. And that's what I'm praying. So I want you guys to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. I feel like I'm cheating on Hebrews 11 by saying that. Um, I know many of you guys have been with us. It's been great to have you here. We uh, just spent 11 weeks on Hebrews 11. It rocked uh, my face off personally. I can't speak for yours. Looks like it though for some of you. Um, That's not a compliment. Um, God really changed my heart, changed my life through the journey. But tonight we start, there are two more chapters in Hebrews. Uh, And so we get the amazing chance to uh, teach and encourage and learn uh, through two of the most famous verses here in the book. You guys there? Say I'm there. Wonderful. Thank you so much for always participating in that way. It makes me feel warm and fuzzy. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 2, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Powerful, poetic, amazing text. Let's begin here in verse 1 with some surgery of the passage. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I want to break this passage down almost word for word, and I'm going to begin at the end with uh, this. Run the race with endurance. I think and say the word run, and it makes me throw up in my mouth. Anyone else? I hate running. It, it makes me angry. If there's one of the things in, this, in my life or existence that makes me angry, it's running. Uh, the thought of it gives me a heart attack. I mean, I just don't like doing it. It's, it feels pointless. I know it's good for good health and all, um, but as for me and my house, it's just not enjoyable. Any other run haters here? I mean, I can run up and down the basketball court. I enjoy that. I can run in the short spurts in football. But to run aimlessly around a track just feels pointless. It feels like I'm wasting my life away, right? (laughs) So I know some of you guys enjoy running. And for those of you, I'll be here uh, to pray with you afterwards. But um, (laughs) as much as I hate it, as much as I don't like the term, five times in the New Testament at least, Paul uh, and other writers use running as an analogy to talk about faith. So as as much as it makes me want to throw up in my mouth, we've got to wrestle with this because it's in the Scripture, right? 
So the, the key understanding then is, all right, if running is in the Bible and if uh, endurance is attached to it, then, then how should we approach it? In other words, why is the analogy or the metaphor used? I, I have two theories. The first is this. In a race, there is a goal. Now, uh, when I was uh, a few years ago, um, I got coaxed into making one of the worst decisions I had, I've ever made in my life, and that was to run a half marathon. Um, listen, um, that decision literally was horrible. I mean, if I could go back and change one thing about my life, it would be to never run that stinking race. <laughs> and the, like the training made me angry, like the hitting the pavement, all of it. I just hated every second of it. No one had told me. No one had told me, of course, you could say conventional wisdom uh, or common sense would be good. No one told me not to buy a new pair of shoes the day before the race, right? I went to J.C. Penney looking for some good running shoes. <laughs> and and the, the kind salesman there uh, <laughs> sold me on a $20 pair of running shoes. And, uh, and I said, so you're sure these are running shoes? Oh, yeah, they're running shoes. Well, they turned out to be clogs. Have you ever, have you ever ran in wooden boats? <laughs> like, that's what... The other thing was, and I can't go into much detail here, but no one prepped me on the proper clothing. No, no don't assume. Don't assume. Don't be... <laughs> Listen, I get a half mile into this thing, a half mile of whatever, 13, I, it didn't even, I don't even care how long it was. After 10, you're so delirious, you're like seeing giraffes and elephants, like it doesn't, it doesn't even matter how long it is. Half mile into this thing, my feet are hurting so bad in my brand new clogs that I mean, I'm just, I'm ready to die already. And then about a mile into this thing, the clothing factor starts happening and Literally, the only thing, because I wanted to quit, I mean, I wanted to do all kinds of things, especially to my friend who had made me run this thing. The only thing that kept me in the race was knowing that I would have the chance, maybe, to say I finished. Now, uh, interesting to note, uh, I know some of you guys have ran a half marathon, a good time for half, um, you know, is anywhere between like two hours, two hours and 15 minutes, right? Is that right for those of you who have run a half before? Has anyone in here actually ran a half marathon? Okay. Uh, what's a good time there? An hour and 40 minutes, even better. Um, so, <laughs> thank you. Like, I, you could have really helped me there. So, so I rolled in at the time of three hours and 15 minutes. <laughs> but I finished! I finished! And there was no sense of accomplishment. I mean, I was like, this... But literally, as I'm like hurting and thinking and bleeding, the only thing that was going through my mind was, there's an end to this. And the, the writer's point in bringing up the race and the point of even using the analogy of the race is that in a race, if there's not an ending, it's pointless. Like if there's not something you're racing towards or if there's not some goal that you're trying to achieve or at least get to, some finish line, if you will, then... You're running around aimlessly. Paul talks often as he's speaking about running that finishing is key. He said, I fought the good fight. I finished the race, he says in 2 Timothy. In another place, he, he says, listen, I don't want to run aimlessly. I want to run as if to get the prize. So I think this running analogy is used in the Bible because there's a goal and we're to set out and seek it and finish it. The second reason that I think running is in the Bible is because a long race is a race of pace. Listen, 
If I would have put myself, and I ran the St. Louis half, in the front of the line, and if I would have sprinted for 100 yards of that 13 point whatever miles, I, I guarantee you I would have started out ahead of everyone. I could have for 100 yards been the victor. And then on 101 yards, I would have easily been passed by everyone because I would have fallen on the concrete, passed out. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, that's the point. Anyone can start. Any, anyone can start. But this is a race of pace. There's a huge burden on my heart because I know many of you who are either new to the faith or have yet to grow in your understanding of it, you watch others around you and you base your expectations on others around you and not Jesus. And so in doing so, you place false expectations on what faith is to look like, and you get burnt out in the first two or three months. Good friends of mine right now who are teetering on that line. They've come to faith, got into it. Some people place wrong expectations on them. Hey, listen, by tomorrow you should be able to witness to 4,000 people. Not a problem. Stand up. Do Hold on a second. Like, I'm just learning what even God's love is. It's a race of pace. And so the Bible, and even the writer here in Hebrews, points to this race metaphor to get our minds thinking about running with endurance. The next slide, the second thing that we see here is our encouragement on why we can run. And that's because in uh, the beginning of verse 1 there, we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. I'm a big fan of clouds. Anyone else? I grew up loving meteorology. In fact, before I wanted to be a pastor, uh, I was certain I was going to be a meteorologist, which means you study and perform weather. Um, actually, hold on. You, anyway, you get what I'm saying. Um, now I don't want to be a meteorologist anymore. I want, want to be a 1-800-STORM uh, chaser. That's what I want to do. That's my dream. I want to gather six or seven dudes or females, maybe one or two, um, and I want to I get in my minivan. I want to get in my minivan and I want to stick a false radar, fake radar on the top of that thing. And I just want to go to Kansas for like a month and chase tornadoes. That's what I want to do. Is that anyone, anyone with me? Like think of, think of, how, hard, think of how, how, how hardcore that would be, right? And we hook up a propane tank to the back of my van. We, we bring a grill with us. Jason Scott can grill it up, right? And we just start running around chasing tornadoes, you know? That's what I'm talking about, right? So if any of you guys are in, there's a sign up. Um, we'll add that next week, but... Uh, but the thing I love about clouds is they're all around us. They become a big image. And in the scripture, certainly the image that the writer is trying to portray is this. If you've ever been in an airplane before and you've kind of come up in the cloud line, there's this eerie feeling when you're in a cloud because you feel almost enveloped. You're like, I'm not so sure we're going to get out of this. Like, like, but then when you finally break out of it, it's, it's like this, this crazy thing. When you're in the middle of it, it feels like it's all-consuming. What the writer is saying is, look, we are in a cloud of witnesses. In other words, we are enveloped. I've just spent a whole chapter 11 showing you guys with example after example after an example, listen, that endurance is possible. It's possible to start the race and actually finish it. Hey, did you, do you remember Abel? Right? You remember Enoch? You remember Noah? Remember Abraham, Sarah, Rahab the prostitute? Guess what? Their lives... They didn't just start, run hard at the beginning. They had a life and endurance and a race of pace. They finished. They endured. That's why I love me some seasoned people up in this church. Any 50 plus in here tonight? Any 50 plus? Yeah, praise God for you people, right? In our first service, there's many more. The rest of you guys should be cheering for these people. Give it up for these people. Come on. Right? 
You guys keep coming back every week. We will cheer for you every week, all right? We'll bring you up, autograph session and all. The reason why I love people of season here, it seems like a term of endearment, is because they, they reveal to us that having a 30, 40, 50 year marriage is possible. They're the revelation to us that you can actually start something and make it 40 years and be stronger in your faith now than you were when you were a teenager. We need them in our community to be the reminder, and that's what the writer's saying. Listen, all these dudes in the Old Testament and the females alike are a great cloud of witnesses because they show you it's possible to endure. And so he says, run the race with endurance. We're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, but there's a caveat. Next slide. There are hindrances in running. And those hindrances we see there in the middle of verse 1, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which, so cl- uh, which clings so closely. Uh, there's a reason why uh, professional runners, unlike myself, run in the skimpiest of outfits. Um, You don't see people running marathons in uh, winter coats and stockings. You know what I'm saying? Uh, They run in a stocking hat. Stocking hat. I don't know my clothing. Get off me. I'm not sure. You don't see people running with a lot of clothing is my point, right? It would, it would be pointless. Now, many of you guys, if you've ever trained in track, and again, God forbid you've had to do that, but if you have, um, sometimes they'll run with um, weights on their ankles. And, and the point is, like, eventually I'll be able to run faster because, but in the meantime, it's, it's extremely, uh, extremely strenuous on your body. And, and the point of the writer saying here is, is these people have, that have been such a great cloud of witnesses, they've laid aside weight. Now, I think weight comes in a few different forms. And I think some of you guys feel like you're running tonight, but you're, but you're not feeling freed at all, feeling held back, pulled back. You feel like there's maybe even no place to go, and it may be because of one of these three reasons. Next slide. The first uh, version of weight is hurt from the past. Some of you guys are trying to run the race, but that relationship that hurt you, that parent that did you wrong that abuse that you suffered, you haven't been able to lay it aside. So what the writer is saying is, is that if that's the case, then are you really running? Or rather, can you run? Next kind of weight is um, a little bit different, stress from the present. Any of you guys just confessed a, a bit of, a, bit of a, a moment of stress here, right? Like, Whatever you're going through today, whatever is happening in your life, the questions about um, finances, the questions about relationships, whatever it may be, you feel stressed, agree or disagree. I mean, that when you feel stressed and overwhelmed, enveloped in your own self-consumption, it's hard to run, isn't it? It's hard to get anywhere. The third kind of weight is this, um, anxiety about the future. The Bible says to cast all of our anxiety on Him because He cares for us. And the point is, listen, do you think you can run filled with worry and fret about the future, the past, or the present? My friends, good luck with that. And I'm really, really burdened by this particular uh, piece of the text for this next reason. Next slide. Running with weight leads to exhaustion. I firmly believe that one of the greatest dangers in our faith is exhaustion. And I fully recognize that there's some people here tonight that are burnt out. 
And that is for you one of the most dangerous places you can ever be. You have felt burnout before. You felt exhausted. And you know what happens in exhaustion? You get careless. When you're well aware, when your senses were there, when you're seeking Christ, when the weight of your past, present or future wasn't pulling you back, you could see temptation. You know what happens. Relationships that start to get careless start to get very physical. Have you seen that? You started out with some standards. You started out conversating about how the relationship was to go. You get careless for one second because of exhaustion, and pretty soon it's full-fledged physicality. And I'm not sure if that's a word, right? Those of you dudes who struggle with pornography, you know this full well. That when you get exhausted, you get careless. And when you get careless, your eyes wander, your hearts wander. It becomes so much easier to indulge. This is one of our greatest challenges. And what the writer says, the key is, is this is a race of endurance. And so we're ridding of all this weight, the pain. It has to go somewhere. Otherwise, guess what? Eventually, you will get exhausted. And in doing so, you will burn out and maybe even turn your back on the very one who you thought saved you. So I just want to ask right now, like, for those of you that are super tired, exhausted, like figuring out, like, what does all this mean? My encouragement to you is to hold on for one more second. Because if it just stops here, I feel a little bit helpless. Because we're like, all right, so there's a great cloud of witnesses, so I guess I'm just supposed to, like, throw it aside like they did. Hang on with me, all right? Now, the next thing that we see is a sin, a sin which clings as our hindrance in running. I want to talk pet peeves for a moment, if we could. Um, just throw some out for me. What, any pet peeves here in the room? Leaving their blinker on. Okay, thank you for sharing that. Uh, any, what's that? Smack, okay, so the open mouth eaters. Those people should be put on the island somewhere and just like they can just have buffets endless and just smack around like... I'm with you. One more. Any others? What's it? The slow chewer. Okay. Not only the open mouth eater, but the slow chewer. Interesting. Hadn't thought about that before. So here's one of my biggest pet peeves, uh, period. After I've taken my fourth shower of the day, uh, those of you guys that don't know me well, I take many showers. I'm a very cleanly person. That doesn't seem that uh, weird or wrong to me. I would think smelling good would be uh, appropriate for a pastor. Regardless, after I've taken my uh, fourth shower of the day, the most frustrating thing, most frustrating thing and annoying thing is static. I hate static. I'm serious. Like, my worst nightmare is running with a staticky shirt. Like, you combination those two things and it's lights out, game over, right? Seriously, though, like, I, you know, end of the night, like tonight, I go home from church, I'll put in a tombstone pizza, holler, right? Put in a tombstone pizza, right? Take a shower, and if the shirt that I've chosen to end my night with has static, I mean, I, I just, I'm just, I'm over. Because it's like, it's so restricting, and you, you imagined it being comfortable in your mind, and then you put it on, and you feel like Ryan Miner, like muscle shirt in the baptismal, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just like... This thing is constricting and you're trying to like pull it off of you. Ryan, that's a compliment to you if you're here. Listen, listen, here's the reality. Here's the reality. Um, what the writer is not saying is these people didn't have weight. He's not saying that, is he? No. 
The writer is not saying these people didn't sin, is he? No. He's saying they had weight and they had sin. What he's saying is they laid it aside. They put it aside. Listen, if you think you can put aside your habitual sin, you are mistaken. If you think you can run on the hamster wheel of a habitual, repetitive sin over and over, and that you can just somehow just throw that aside, good luck with that. It's only through the power of Christ you even have a chance. And what 1 John says is, listen, if you're making a practice of sinning, the literal translation is, and I don't mean to be harsh, it's just the straight scripture, you're the son of the devil, that's what 1 John says. Habitual, repetitive sin, he says you're born of Satan. doesn't mean in the scriptures that we won't struggle or at times uh, have periodic bouts with sin. But if you're just feeding off of your flesh consistently, pursuing your passions more than the things of God, we have to call into question your faith and actions working together. Amen? We have to call it into question. We have to say, and I'm not a judge of souls, but we have to say, if you think you're you're somehow going to push that aside when it's so consuming, it's like a shirt that just won't lose its static. It will cling to you. It's only by the power of uh, of, of the cross of Christ that you can let those go. So I just want to encourage you tonight that if you're reading this, you're like, yeah, man, I just, I'm feeling like the, the sin is just is clinging to me and I want to let it go. Paul talked about that struggle too in Romans 7 and he says, I delight in the law of God. I'm struggling with sin, but I delight in God's law. I love it. I love following God at this point. So if you're here tonight like not, not loving following God, but thinking that somehow that, that that then translates into pushing off your sin, No. Do you love obeying God? <laughs> you love listening to His commands and saying, by your grace, I will follow you. i got nowhere else to go. So if we were to summarize this, we would say this next slide. That these men and women in Hebrews 11 and even those around us are a great example of what it looks like to put weight and sin to the side and run a race that's completely focused with endurance, with the intention from the beginning of finishing. You heard what I said? With the intention from the beginning of finishing the race. I see this perpetual thing, especially in young people in our culture. Start things, and with lack of integrity, quit them. I'm not saying that every time you quit, it's a lack of integrity, but I say most times when you put your word in something and then you pull out, I certainly seem, I certainly would call into question your integrity at some junctures. These people started with the intention of finishing their faith well. Now, like I said already, if we stop here, I'm discouraged. Because I'm like, yeah, I want to throw off my weight. Okay. So like, what does that look like? Have you guys ever been to there? You know, you're like feeling burned down. What? You're feeling burdened way down. I, I, I'm, I'm not running in freedom. Okay, so what do you want me to do with it? Go like reach down in my heart and like, you know, throw it like confetti, right? Like, wh- what do I do? These people just put it aside. Here's what you do. Next slide. You start questioning what race you're running in. You start questioning what race you're running in. The question isn't if you're running in a race. The question is which one is it? Is it after the pursuits of your flesh and the passions, your desires, consuming? Or is it the person of God, His Son, Jesus? Is that the race? The next question you should be asking yourself is if and when you feel exhausted, what do you think is the cause? I know before you maybe would have said, well, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just really busy right now, and so I think I'm getting burnt out. 
got too much on my plate, like my schedule, my calendar is just packed. I'm really feeling stressed. Is that the issue? Or is the issue that you're trying to run the race of Christ, pulling along all this weight and sin? Both of those answers lead me, leave me discouraged. That's why I love verse 2. Check this out. Let us run the race with endurance that is set before us. And in verse 2, looking to Jesus. Now, I've come to this point in many teachings in my past. And here has been my direction in the past. Listen, you need to run the race. You need to keep your eyes focused. So keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. But if you're like me, there's a lot to look at, isn't there? I mean, how many of you guys would readily confess to having ADJ, whatever the ADHD, D, triple, whatever? You guys have that triple, you know, okay. And you feel like all the time you're just like, you know, a kid in a candy store. I mean, you can't stop. There's a lot to look at in our culture. When I've taught this principle previously, I would have said this. Listen, you need to keep your eyes on Jesus all the time. Keep your eyes focused on Christ. And so then the practicality of that is, okay, so I walk out, and is there like a cross in the sky or something? Like, you know, or I'm like walking down Main Street, and I'm hoping the triumphant entry is going to come, and like this man on a donkey and palm branch, oh, there's Jesus, you know. I'm like, this teaching has caused a, a massive perspective, a change in me. I don't think our issue is keeping our focus just solely on the person of Christ, I think our issue is seeing Jesus in more things in our culture. In other words, isn't He all around? Isn't His work and His grace and His glory all around us? Instead of thinking that Jesus is just contained in the confines of a church building or some Bible study or some Christian relationships you have. What if all of a sudden you started walking out and looking at the very creation, slum or not, you instantly were reminded of the power of Christ. Like when it says look to Jesus, it's not that there's going to be this cross necklace dangling in the mirror as you look at yourself every day. It's that in the persons that you see up here, I'm reminded of grace. In your deepest moments of despair, as you're walking down that dorm room hallway and you're seeing chaos and sin all around, you're reminded of everyone's need of Jesus. You see Jesus there too. When you're struggling in your own self-pity, you're reminded that your only hope out is Jesus. Is our issue that we're not seeing Him, focused on Him, or is the issue that we don't see Him enough everywhere? See what I'm saying? So he says, look to Jesus, that means, hey, open your eyes. My new contention is, it's hard not to find him. And I know so many of you guys are having a difficult time finding him. It's because the word is telling you what he is and looks like. And you're still created, you've still created some image in your mind about the person of Jesus, just like the Pharisees. Oh, when Jesus comes, he's going to grenade launch all the Romans. He's going to blow off their heads, it's going to be awesome. To running around, you know. Instead of seeing Jesus as a servant, as a king, as someone who's gracious and has compassion on the helpless, when that perspective changes, I personally believe everything changes. He says, look to Jesus, please see this, the founder and perfecter of our faith. You look to Jesus because he is the one who has finished the work of faith. He wrote it. And all those Old Testament examples, the great clouds of witnesses, they don't even compare to Jesus because he authored it. 
They had faith, but they didn't author it. He authored it, my friends, and came and lived and embodied faith. I think the issue that arises in us is when we start to think that we can author it. We grab the little pen of plan and faith and trust and begin to write our perceived own chapters in our own perceived book. That will always cause tension because he is the author. So what happens when you finally just say, thank you, God, for perfecting? The word there in the Greek is completing and authoring my faith. Uh, Many of you guys uh, from last week, 225 people responded uh, in last week's response. Unbelievable. Loved it. Uh, So many people said that they want to know Jesus for the first time. I've been meeting with all those people one-on-one. One of the greatest questions I've been getting as we've been wrestling with the gospel is this. Mark, um, listen, how do you know that your way is right? But there's a lot of religions out there. How do you know your way is? And anyone asks me that question, I always start out first with this. Um, listen, uh, so let's just take religions in general. Have you noticed that uh, every religion except Christianity is the same? Well, and, and they're like, well, what do you mean? Every religion outside of Christianity is merit works based. Every single one. In other words, I do something as a human, and then in turn, I appease a God. Fair enough? I act, I do something, I perform a certain ritual or duty or good work, and then the God of that structure is appeased, right? And then instead of killing me off or something, I, you know, I reincarnate in some religions, I get seven heavens and a bunch of concubines in other religions, like all kinds of crazy stuff. I'm like, aren't you a little bit interested in the exception? Every religion is the same, except Christianity, where Jesus dies on a cross, walks out of a tomb, and because of that, because of his work, not your own, you can have grace. I'm like, call me logical, but I'm going with the exception, period. If everything is alike, I'm already interested in the thing that's not like. One of, the, one of these things ain't like the other. That's what Sesame Street told me, you know? Right? Right? Now, the other thing I say is this. I can't run from the scripture. I can't run from it. I'm sorry. The Bible says Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. And also here, Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. I can't run from that. That means nothing else. That means I'm not or any other God or system is. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. Now, we're starting to build what the scriptures pulling together here. This gets so beautiful. Looking at Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for, or who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What other religion puts endurance and joy in the same sentence? Especially enduring suffering and joy. This connects for the person of Christ, the bloody, open flesh, flogged, Beaten, spat on, Jesus. Nails through his flesh, Jesus. It connects all of that and the joy of Christ somehow. That for the joy that was set before him, which is obeying his Father, I'm pleased in obeying you, God, we see in John 15 and 17. I will endure all that the cross is. So no matter what it means, no matter what it bears, I will endure it. And listen, listen, this is insane. The crazy part of this text is next. Despising the shame. Now that is so incredibly interesting. What does that mean? Despising the shame. 
when Jesus is on the cross, the wrath of God against sin is put on Jesus. That wrath you deserved. Fair enough? You deserved it. You're a sinner. God had to pour out His wrath against sin. And Jesus is our substitute. So on the cross, He's bearing all the wrath that you and I deserved. He dies. His blood forgives us of our sins. And then three days later, hold on, hold on, despising its shame, three days later, despising means the exact same thing that we just saw in verse 1, laying aside, putting aside what clings to you, the sin, the weight, despising the shame means Jesus, when the work was done, there was no more shame because sin was atoned for. The finished work of Christ, despising the shame, is conquering death, walking out of a tomb and saying death has no sting anymore. You see what I'm saying? That's despising the shame. It's I'm not going to sit here in this tomb any longer. The work is done. The debt is paid. Sons and daughters can know God because of me now. That's what Jesus said. So we see this powerful text of despising the shame. You have to sit back and say, praise God that he endured for the joy set before him. Now I start to get encouraged. Now the same discouragement I felt after verse 1, I start to get a glimmer of hope. The writer's point is this. Listen, all those Old Testament characters, great examples, they don't come near Jesus. Jesus endured perfectly, died a death, raised a raised a life, and he's your ultimate example. That's why he ends this way. And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God in victory. Done. Victory. You can have that too. Now, I sit back from all of this. And I'm so incredibly encouraged to ask you this again. Next slide. <clears throat> the most commonly used phrase in our entire language, the fail-safe, the thing we turn to the most, how are you? The innumerable canned responses that you have gotten and that you've given to this phrase, what if this phrase became our greatest opportunity, this question, our greatest chance at remembering the fullness of the gospel? What if in the most common phrase question in the English language became our greatest remembrance to keep running? What if that was the case? So Paul in 2 Corinthians is asked, how are you? And this is what he says. Check this. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Any fans of the band? Any fans of the band? Good band. Their uh, album Flood is one of my favorite Christian albums of all time. That's before everyone was just doing worship. Um, really enjoyed that album, great album. Uh, in the Bible, though, I'm not sure if they're aware of this. I'm sure they are. A jar of clay was not good. Okay, I, if you've ever been in third grade art, you know it's, it's very brittle. Okay, you, I made this, uh, this Native American when I was in third grade. It looked more like a rainbow, honestly. It had no shape and form. Um, it was supposed to be a Native American. And, and I dropped it off the sink one day, and the thing just shattered. It's brittle. In Jewish times, in ancient Mesopotamia, uh, jars of clay were used for garbage, and they were used for human waste. That's what they were used for. So Paul would have clearly known this, right? So when he says, but we uh, have this treasure in jars of clay, what he's saying is, is I am nothing. 
I am nothing. I'm a jar of clay. We've taken this image and like over-metaphorized. That's not, definitely not a word. We've like over-exemplified over this, you know. We're like, oh, but I'm a, you know, a jar of clay. And, and there are other texts about him being the potter and us the clay. Totally different context. Look at what he says. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I'm nothing without God. And then Paul's asked, how are you? We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Paul's asked, how are you? And he says, let me tell you how I am. You know what? I'm beat down. I'm struggling, but I am not hopeless. I'm wrestling with massive things in my life. I'm perplexed, but I am not crushed. When he's asked, how are you? Or when it's on his heart to explain how he is, it's clear that there is a joy that's set before Paul. And yet we, when we're asked how we're doing, we say things like, I'm perplexed, and that's where it ends. I'm crushed. I'm beat down. And then, of course, being good friends, we come to each other's rescue, hand over a tissue, give each other hugs, and we just sit there in our despair together. But what if the most common question in our entire language became our greatest reminder of the gospel? What if now every single time people said, how are you? I'm reminded, you know what, yeah? I'm struggling, but listen, I'm not hopeless. I'm perplexed. I mean, I am stressed. I got a lot of stuff going on, but I'm not beat down. Why? Because I have a greater hope, a greater joy, and I'm still running. Because of Christ, the sin that, the, the sin that used to cling to me is gone. It was nailed to the cross. The weight that feels like it's entangling me, is completely left in the dust because of the power of Christ. So yeah, you know what? This whole situation is incredibly tough, but I find myself today still joyful. So what if every single time someone said, how are you? And I'm not saying you have to go in some sermon or dissertation. I'm not saying now you have to be like, you know, and you just have to create something. I'm really horrible, but Christ is good. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's even more a matter of your heart. What if literally every single time, it, it happened to me after the service, in between services about 15 times, and I was so blessed by it. Because anytime someone said, how are you? All I could think of in my heart was, nothing matters except that I have him. So you know what? I'm doing amazing. And it wasn't a canned response. It wasn't robotic, because that was my biggest frustration about the church growing up. Hey, how you doing? Fine, fine. Everyone was smiling. Everyone had it all together. The Christian handshake. It, it, it was like we were living in the Truman Show in the confines of a church. Have you ever felt that way before? I'm not telling anyone of you now that we just need to like put on the happy-go-lucky smile. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying, you press into Jesus, and the natural outcome of your heart is, listen, I have nothing else. He's my hope. I don't care what happens in this life. I'm running the race with endurance because in the end, it'll be my joy to see him in his glory. So I don't know where you're at tonight. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what you're wrestling. I don't know what sins cling to you. I don't know what weight you're bearing. All I know is this. 
this question can be the most transforming thing in our lives as we watch the gospel just flow through our natural cultural language. Stand with me. My biggest worry every week, every week that we gather, every week that our law families get together, is that you just think that now this is the way you're supposed to be. So you look to your left or your right or you watch me and you're like, all right, that's what I'm supposed to be like. My biggest fear here is that we all just become robots. Expressive robots. The only way to battle that is that the more that you dig into God's Word, not out of discipline, but out of desire to know Him and to understand Him, the more you commune with Him through prayer, the more you see your heart changing and you know that it's never an act. And isn't that freeing? Some of you, your biggest weight right now is the fact that all this is a facade. Your expressions, the language you're using, it's just one big show. It is so freeing when He has truly changed you and you just are who you are. And listen, I certainly have my struggles But I will say this about my life. I pray every single week that God will allow me to stand up here and just communicate God's word out of what he's done in my heart. Reckless abandon. I don't care if any of you go back and say, he's too fired up. I don't care. I'll go down like that. So let's pray together that God will make all this real. The joy set before us, running the race with endurance, leaving behind our weights and the sin that clings, being able to answer, how are you? Let's pray that. Father, I thank you that your son is sitting on your right hand. (laughs) I thank you, God, for victory that is ours through Jesus and that death has no sting anymore. So, God, for my friends here who feel dead, I pray, Father, that you will remind them that life is possible through your son, God, for those feeling exhausted, tired, worn out, I pray, Father, that you will put a new hope and a new joy in my brothers and sisters. That they would feel their hearts even now being warmed and stirred simply by your love and your grace, that you are that good. And it's not a fairy tale that we're talking about. God, please remind us of the power of the truth of all this. And I pray that we will fully believe that when we're perplexed and stressed, And it feels like the weight of the world is against us. We're not down because of your reality. Thank you, God, for sitting on your throne.